Yeah, Let, go let's, ahead. let's turn very. Let's turn it to Smartmatic and Dominion. Don't do are it. they or are they not linked? They're not, Lou. You should be more careful when you're on the air. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. Yes and no. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Bird and Square Radio, and Detour Talk Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome to the Bradcast. And I got to tell you, and Desi Doyen, I think you can uh, uh, back me up here on this one. <laughs> okay. As much as I would like to stop talking about Donald Trump... It looks like we're going to have to, uh, it's going to be a while in any event before he is fully in our rear view mirror, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. There's no way around that. There is no way around it. With his second impeachment trial coming up next week, more big lawsuits being filed, it seems, every day against his supporters who were suckered into his con arrests and expanding criminal charges for those involved in his January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, not to mention the potential violence that may follow that attack, according to my guest joining us momentarily. There is, of course, the cleanup and or reversal of his disastrous policies still underway each day by the new president, Joe Biden. And, of course, we can at least hopefully look forward to whatever indictments, criminal or civil, that we hope uh, to see come his way in the future. So... Yeah, he's gone. He's out of the White House, but he's he's not out of our hearts <laughs> and minds. Uh, uh. Before I get to my guest today, uh, some quick accountability news of a sort on that score. House Democrats on Thursday asked Trump to testify under oath. Uh oh. For his Senate impeachment trial, challenging the former president to respond to their charge that he incited a violent mob to storm the Capitol. The request and a letter from House impeachment managers 
does not require Trump to even appear, though the Senate could later force a subpoena. But it does warn that any refusal to testify could be used at trial to support arguments for a conviction. In a response, a Trump advisor said Trump will not testify. Why? Why? Because he knows damn well that he will only make his case worse by being held accountable for what he says for, yes, lying under oath in the U.S. Senate. Hours after the letter to Trump was released, his advisor Jason Miller said, quote, the president will not testify in an unconstitutional proceeding. <laughs> well, because the process is just so wrong. I just can't. <laughs> this, uh, this proceeding is, is absolutely not unconstitutional, as Trump was constitutionally impeached while in office, which requires, according to the Constitution, that he stand trial in the U.S. Senate. Yes, even if out of office, as has happened in previous executive branch impeachments throughout our history. Separately, Trump's lawyers dismissed the request as, quote, a public relations stunt. So the guy who always wants to speak, who always wants to be the center of attention, who claims that he is being censored by Twitter and uh, cancel culture, and the, uh, and the so-called fake news media, he's offered the spotlight to tell his story before the biggest audience that he has probably ever had or ever will, and he's too chicken to do it. Is anyone surprised by that? Democrat Congressman Jamie Raskin, one of the impeachment managers, said the managers will, yes, use his refusal against him in the trial as well they should. The Senate impeachment trial uh, begins next Tuesday, February 9. Hey, Donnie, it'll be a big audience if you want to come and talk there. They'd love to have you. In any event, before we get there, however, more legal trouble for the Trump sycophants at Fox News, who received a 285-page, $2.7 billion lawsuit today from voting machine uh, from a voting machine company that most folks have never even heard of by the name of Smartmatic. One of the reasons few have ever heard of them is because they do not do business in the U.S. in any jurisdiction until just last year for the first time in one single county, which happens to be out here in Los Angeles. Nonetheless, they became a target of Team Trump who read or should I say misread or purposely misunderstood and or reimagined a deep dive investigative article of mine that I published in regard to the company, in regard to Smartmatic back in 2010. Well, and by the way, I'm glad I did. I am I so glad I wrote that article <laughs> because, boy, these dumbasses read it. And they completely reimagined it, and now they're getting sued for billions of dollars for it. You're welcome. Anyway, <clears throat> the lawsuit begins this way. First paragraph. The Earth is round. Two plus two equals four. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won the 2020 election for president and vice president of the United States. The election was not stolen, rigged, or fixed. These are facts. They are demonstrable and irrefutable. Next paragraph, 
Defendants have always known these facts. They know Joe. They knew Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won the 2020 U.S. election. They knew the election was not stolen. They knew the election was not rigged or fixed. They knew these truths just as they knew the earth is round and 2 plus 2 equals 4. Next paragraph. Defendants did not want Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to win the election. They wanted President Donald Trump and Vice President Michael Pence to win re-election. Defendants were disappointed, but they also saw an opportunity to capitalize on President Trump's popularity by inventing a story. Defendants decided to tell people that the election was stolen from President Trump and Vice President Pence. This is a lawsuit. This is how the lawsuit begins. It continues a little bit later. Defendant's story was a lie, all of it, and they knew it. But it was a story that sold. Millions of individuals who saw and read defendant's reports believed them to be true. Smartmatic and its officers began to receive hate mail and death threats. Smartmatic's clients and potential clients began to panic. Smartmatic's loss was defendant's gain. Fox News used the story to preserve its grip on viewers and readers and curry favor with the outgoing administration. One of their anchors was even able to get a pardon for her ex-husband. Sidney Powell used the story to raise money and enrich herself. Rudy Giuliani used the story to guarantee himself a flow of funds from the sitting president and to sell products. Defendants knew the story could not change the outcome of the election. It could and did make them money. The story undermined people's belief in democracy. The story turned neighbor against neighbor. The story led a mob to attack the U.S. Capitol. Defendants started a fire for selfish and financial reasons, and they cared not the damage their story caused to Smartmatic, its officers and employees, and the country. That from the lawsuit filed today, as the Times, uh, New York Times describes this newest huge lawsuit against members of Trump's MAGA media mob, Rupert Murdoch's Fox Corporation and three of its popular anchors are the targets of a $2.7 billion defamation lawsuit filed on Thursday by a company that became a prominent subject of discredited theories about widespread fraud in the 2020 presidential election. Smartmatic, an election technology company, filed the lawsuit in New York State Supreme Court against the Fox Corporation, Fox News, and the anchors Lou Dobbs, Maria Bartiromo, and Janine Pirro. Or is that Pyro? As part of the same action, the company is also suing Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, who made the case for election fraud as guests on Fox programs uh, while representing Donald Trump. Here was Lou Dobbs with Sidney Powell on his show attempting to <laughs> and failing to cite something from the Brad Blog's decade-old reporting on Dominion voting systems and a company that they bought that was once owned by Smartmatic. Let's turn it to Smartmatic and Dominion. Are they or are they not linked? No, Lou, they aren't. 
You could have read my story. You could have tried at least to understand it. In any event, in its uh, 285-page complaint, Smartmatic argues that Giuliani and Powell, quote, created a story about Smartmatic and that, quote, Fox joined the conspiracy to defame and disparage Smartmatic and its election technology and software. And once again here, as I never enjoy, I find find myself sort of defending a voting machine company. Once again, I need to state that I don't believe any private company, corporation whatsoever has any place in our public elections, much less one that counts votes with secret software in their computers that the public cannot oversee. Uh, but, but listen, you're not technically OK. So technically, yes, you are defending a voting machine company for the reasons that you've explained. But you're basically actually defending the truth and facts and reality. Thank you. So Thank you. That's a much better way to put it. It just happens to be Smartmatic yes. that is uh, caught up in it. But it's still what are the facts? What is reality? What is verifiable? It's just another uh, voting machine company that accidentally told the truth in this case. <laughs> and therefore, I'm going to defend them. Yes, as ridiculous and unfounded. Uh, are the complaints about Dominion voting systems. At least they had voting machines and tabulators and such in Georgia and some of the other battleground states. But Smartmatic did not and does not. They only have machines here in Los Angeles where they were installed for the first time in 2020. And yes, I spent years complaining about those. Uh, but these folks pretending that there is some Dominion and Smartmatic conspiracy to steal the election from Donald Trump. I mean, they did not even bother to notice that in most of the Dominion counties uh, where the Dominion uh, machines were used, Donald Trump actually won. And yet somehow they cite that as Dominion stealing the election for Joe Biden. Their conspiracy does not even make sense. Smartmatic is seeking damages of, quote, no less than $2.7 billion. According to the complaint, they are requesting a jury trial. Now, yes, $2.7 billion does sound like a lot of money because it is a lot of money. But, in fact, the Fox Corporation made $3 billion in profit on uh, $12.3 billion in revenue from September of 2019 to September of last year. So, in truth... It's not even a full year's profit for the company, which is valued at uh, almost $18 billion. But it is a lot of money, $2.7 billion. On the other hand, Dominion, which was arguably much more harmed by all of this nonsense, they have already filed two lawsuits last month, one against Sidney Powell, another against Giuliani. Each of those were for $1.3 billion each, and they were against a person. Well, two people, one $1.3 billion for each of them uh, against single individuals, much less a huge company. So Smartmatic is going in for what? Uh, what did I say? $2.7 billion. Dominion has threatened to sue Fox, but they haven't done it so far. They were much more harmed. So how much more will their lawsuit be against the Republicans pretend news organization if and when they file it? Which I think they will. Even after storming uh, the Capitol on January 6th, a, a deadly riot uh, was uh, brought by Trump loyalists. Even after all of that, the talk of fraud has not fully died down, notes the New York Times. 
citing the appearance that we noted on our previous broadcast on Tuesday on Newsmax with Mike Lindell, the My Pillow founder and one of Trump's biggest supporters. Uh, he launched an attack on Dominion, or at least he tried to. We played it yesterday. He has already been threatened with a suit by Dominion, so expect that one to come very soon. These guys are in a lot of trouble, oddly enough. Guys like Mike Lindell, owner of My Pillow, does not seem to be losing much sleep over it. I wonder if he will in the future. The defamation attorneys that are hired by these guys are very, very good and very serious and, yes, very successful in the past. In a sign that Dominion's lawsuits have had an effect on right-wing media, during that appearance by Lindell, the uh, co-anchor on Newsmax, uh, was, was cutting him off. He read a statement in the middle of what uh, Lindell was saying about Newsmax accepting the results as legal and final, etc., Giuliani and Powell have repeatedly made the case for election fraud while they were guests on Fox programs hosted by Bartiromo and Dobbs and Pirro. Or is it Pyro? <laughs> uh, they continued to do that in the weeks after the election. Smartmatic said in the complaint that the promotion of false claims on Fox jeopardized its multi-billion dollar pipeline of business. For its part, Fox Today says Fox News Media is committed to providing the full context of every story with in-depth reporting and clear opinion. We are proud of our 2020 election coverage and will vigorously defend this meritless lawsuit in court. Now, among the things they're going to have to defend are the on-air exchanges that smart uh, the, uh, the, the suit highlights, the Smartmatic suit highlights, between Sidney Powell and Lou Dobbs, for example, on November 16, part of which we just played there, where Powell claimed uh, on Dobbs' show that Hugo Chavez, the former president of Venezuela, had a hand in the creation of Smartmatic's technology, designing it so that the votes could be changed undetectedly. Again, this comes straight from my reporting, sort of, at least, the, uh, the tie to Venezuela. I don't believe I ever charged that Chavez was purposely that he had anything to do with designing these systems so that they could change votes. So, yes, my reporting, but then wildly bastardized by Powell uh, to not be anything like what I reported. After the uh, segment, Smartmatic sent a letter uh, demanding corrections. You'll recall that uh, all three Fox anchors aired a segment in which an election expert, Eddie Perez, our friend, he's a guest, he's been a guest on this show, he's a former voting machine employee, uh, he debunked a number of the false claims about Smartmatic when they asked him directly in this weird off-camera voice, as if to say, look, we've shown all sides of this case. We had someone saying these things are not true. Eddie told me that they didn't explain how they were going to use it. They just basically told him that, oh, we just have some questions about Smartmatic. Don Herzog, who teaches First Amendment and defamation law at the University of Michigan, says you can't just make false stuff up about people. In its complaint, uh, Smartmatic claims the Fox anchors and two guests acted with, quote, actual malice and recklessly disregarded the veracity of their statements which is not always easy to prove. But there's a lot in this uh, in this lawsuit. Uh, among them, the, the threats that 
Smartmatic employees faced and their family members. They received threats, death threats, some of which are noted in this complaint. The company's founder and CEO, for example, Antonio Mujica, said, I had one in which I was told they were going to actually come kidnap me. They said they were sending three people. Plane is landing tomorrow, the message allegedly said. Another threat, he said, targeted the teenage son of the company's other founder. Uh, they were able to find his mobile number, which is spooky, spooky enough, Mujica said, and to call and threaten him over the phone. This was Smartmatic, which does not even have any business in Georgia or any of the other swing states. Just incredible. Anyway, I could, of course, talk about this all day long. Uh, I and won't. <laughs> I won't. I have, but I won't. Not today. You're welcome. Uh, because I got a guest standing by. So we will on a, com well, not a completely different topic. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pick this up on another day, I suspect, perhaps when the next lawsuit gets dropped. Until then, yeah, speaking of how Trump supporters have been conned into threatening and or carrying out actual violence, terrorism researchers fear that the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th will not be the last that we will hear from Trump supporters hoping to cause violence and mayhem. Colin P. Clark of the Sufan Center joins us next to explain. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. <laughs> The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. On Civil War Uncivil war, how long must we fight this uncivil war? Same old wounds we opened before, nobody wins in uncivil war. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Warning that the deadly rampage of the Capitol this month may not be an isolated episode. The Department of Homeland Security last week said publicly for the first time, incredibly enough, that the U.S. faced a growing threat from violent domestic extremists emboldened by the attack. That it took them this long, frankly, to warn about the threat of violent domestic extremists is in, it, in itself uh, a disturbing point of note. That despite so many instances of domestic terrorism in this country in recent years, including at least the most well-known, such as the murder of the, uh, at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, the murderous attacks on a synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018, at a Walmart in El Paso in 2019, and the more recent plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan last year, all of which my guest joining me momentarily describes as missed opportunities to take the threat of domestic extremism and terrorism seriously. 
The department's terrorism alert did not name specific groups that might be behind any future attacks, but it made clear that their motivation would include anger over, quote, the presidential transition, as well as other perceived grievances fueled by false narratives. That, of course, a clear reference to the accusations made by President Donald Trump and echoed by right-wing groups that the 2020 election was stolen. To date, almost 200 of the MAGA mob rioters at the Capitol have been arrested and indicted around the country, mostly on somewhat minor charges of unlawfully entering federal property, though federal officials have suggested there would be many more arrests and additional, more serious charges brought against some of those already detained. Several members of the right-wing extremist group, the Oath Keepers, have recently been charged with conspiracy related to the attack. And some members of the right-wing racist group The Proud Boys, who Donald Trump during a presidential debate in September told to stand back and stand by, have also been rounded up. There's a report today that federal officials at the DOJ are considering using RICO laws. Those are statutes initially created to round up mafia kingpins in broad conspiracies in order to widen their net against those responsible for the attempted capital insurrection in January. But in the meantime, the dozens of Americans arrested and charged so far for offenses related to the Capitol riot are mostly unaffiliated with existing racist or anti-government extremist groups, according to a new study from the Chicago Project on Security and Threats. The attack, which immediately followed a speech from then-President Trump instructing his followers to fight like hell and march on the Capitol, has required extremism researchers to change their thinking about far-right violence. Though some rioters were affiliated with known right-wing groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, most were simply violent Trump supporters who have repeatedly told investigators that they came to D.C., at Donald Trump's request. The Chicago Project researchers found, as they described at The Atlantic this week, quote, a new kind of violent mass movement in which more normal Trump supporters, middle class and in many cases middle-aged people without obvious ties to the far right, joined with extremists in an attempt to overturn a presidential election. Of the group formerly accused of breaching the Capitol as of last week, the researchers found that a full 89% were unaffiliated with existing right-wing extremist groups. Is that good news or is that bad? It seems there are a lot of people from law enforcement to terrorism researchers who are only just now all of these years into and now past the Trump administration bothering to figure out who these people are, what has made them so angry, what threat they actually pose to the nation, and, yes, what to do about any of it. Mark Pitcavage, a senior research fellow at the Anti-Defamation League's Center on Extremism, told TPM last month that the Capitol riot represented, quote, the culmination of something that has been developing for some time a new extremist movement centered around the cult of personality of Donald Trump. Targeting pre-2021 far-right organizations alone will not solve the problem, 
According to the Chicago Project researchers, political violence coming from a new mass movement requires new political solutions. Now, in December, about a month prior to the Trump-incited January 6 attack on the U.S. Capitol, we spoke on this program with Colin P. Clark, an intelligence and security consultant who has studied insurgencies in nations around the world going back decades. He warned on this program that Donald Trump was, quote, encouraging his supporters to engage in insurgency-like tactics and behaviors, that there are, quote, real-world consequences to this, and that those listening to Trump and his media organs like Fox News and even farther right-wing media outlets were were then, quote, living in an alternate universe. He warned that Trump supporters are, quote, going to act on it, and that Trump was creating an atmosphere for insurgency similar to those that he had seen around the world in his years of studying radicalism, extremism, and insurgency. And again, that was a month before the terror attack that we all saw at the Capitol on January 6th, for which the president of the United States has been impeached for a second time and will soon be facing a second Senate trial. So we have seen some accountability for some of the participants and instigators of the January 6th attack. But as Clark warned last week in The New York Times, the trouble may only now be beginning. The storming of the Capitol on January 6th by a rabid mob of Donald Trump supporters, he writes, resulted in a failed insurrection. But for far-right extremists, including anti-government militias, white supremacists, and violent conspiracy theorists, nothing about the insurrection was a failure. Joining us now to explain his new concerns about a new era of far-right violence in the wake of January 6 is, once again, Colin P. Clark, a senior research fellow at the Sufan Center, where his research focuses on terrorism, insurgency, and political violence, and is the author of a number of books on terrorism, most recently, After the Caliphate, The Islamic State and the Future Terrorist Diaspora. Colin P. Clark, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thanks for having me. The uh, uh, Capitol attack failed in preventing the certification of uh, Joe Biden's electoral victory. Hundreds of its participants have been rounded up and charged with potentially more people and charges on the way. Donald Trump is no longer in office after having been impeached and will now stand trial in the Senate for incitement of insurrection at the Capitol. But you charged that the attack on January 6th was anything but a failure. How so? Yeah, well, first of all, not only was it not a failure, at least viewed on the part of the insurrectionists, but it was entirely predictable, as you alluded to in your introduction, uh, I wrote a piece in the L.A. Times in late November basically saying everything that Trump was doing uh, to include his violent rhetoric mm -hmm. was laying the groundwork for this type of political violence. I had people call me an alarmist, say, you know, the sky is falling. <laughs> this is, you know, people called me a threat inflator. And look, Brad, it doesn't make me feel good that I was right. right. I mean, you know, I'm not sitting here taking a victory lap and saying, oh, you know, how prescient was that? It was obvious to any extremism researcher that that knows what they're talking about that this was the kind of logical conclusion mm -hmm. of where where things were headed the president was stoking the flames his enablers in the gop 
were, you know, providing that passive support necessary. And he unleashed, a, you know, a, a mob, essentially, against his own government. Uh-huh. I mean, so the, the images that we saw from the Capitol within hours were being used by violent far-right extremists as propaganda to recruit and fundraise on Telegram and on other social media channels. So that that was what they needed to use as a tool, those photos, those pictures that we've all been showing, that we've all been looking at. Uh, you suggest that that itself now uh, is, a, is a danger moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was their proof of concept moment. These are things that they talk about in their propaganda, but that nobody actually thought the, the government would allow to happen, that they could storm the Capitol, right? People thought it was hyperbole, but the complete lack of security on the day of the event allowed this to happen, and it's really unfortunate uh, because this is going to give the movement momentum, mm-hmm. and it's going to propel the far right well into throughout the next decade. You, your uh, piece in the uh, Times includes this sort of, I, I found this kind of chilling. You write, just as many Americans were motivated to join the U.S. military after the Al-Qaeda attacks of, of uh, September 11 in what they considered an act of patriotism, some may now enlist in anti-government militias or racially motivated ex- extremist groups in an act of reverse patriotism. Now, oddly enough, I suspect that these may sadly be some of the very same similarly politically aligned people, ironically enough. But you see the January 6th attack as sort of a, a, a standalone motivating force akin to the way many saw 9-11, I guess not just in this country, for those who signed up to fight against it, but certainly terrorists around the world who rallied around 9-11. Yeah, no question. I mean, it's that kind of uh, lightning rod event where the world is watching. All eyes were on what was happening in Washington, D.C., Look, these people told us what they were going to do, and then they came down to Washington and did it. Mm-hmm. And the entire time, they were being cheered on by the president. And I mean, he, you know, at first he said he would march up there with them. We all know the president is, you know, not the most courageous. <laughs> uh, you know, President Trump is a bit of a coward. Yeah. Uh, that's well, well documented, in addition to some other, you know, moral shortcomings. But he stoked the flames, and it was this broader network, right? We talk all the time about. We need new laws to do X, Y, and Z. We don't enforce the laws that we have. You know, what happened that day was illegal. Uh, it was insurrection, and so these people need to be held accountable, but also the people that gave them quarter and gave them, you know, support. People, you know, in Congress that were cheering them on from the sidelines and urging them to go do this. And then when they did it, you know, everybody wants to clutch their pearls and say, oh, well, we, we didn't think they'd actually go through with it. You know, I, it's it's just hard to fathom the moral cowardice from certain elements of our Congress. You know, and we've got people in there that are spouting violent conspiracy theories. And and I want to talk about what to do about it. Uh, but a, a few more questions on the event itself and the fallout and what we might expect to see from a new group of, of people you know, who are energized by this, I guess, Uh, after that attack at the Capitol and then the ultimate disappointment for many of them on Inauguration Day on January 20, uh, particularly by the QAnon conspiracy folks who are disappointed that Trump's grand scheme to round up Democrats and deep staters and have them executed for treason, that that all did not come to pass as they were long promised. 
by this mysterious Q person, uh, researchers have reported that there was an effort by even farther right wing neo-Nazis and so forth to use that as an opportunity to recruit some of these folks who were disappointed that uh, the, the QAnon promise never came to pass. And they're trying to now, I guess, recruit those folks into their ranks. Uh, is that what your research uh, sees as well? And does this, tac- this tactic actually work for these groups to bring in new recruits like that? Yeah, no question. It's been fascinating to watch the reaction from some of the more hardcore elements of the far right. Uh, and and we all know that the far right is a is a fairly broad label. It's a it's a broad umbrella. But when I say the most hardcore elements, I'm talking about racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists. I'm talking about neo Nazis, white supremacists, uh, and they're you know essentially in platforms like Telegram, openly talking about well, how do we recruit you know these QAnon losers? They're they're talking about them in a very derogatory manner very derisively, which shows you you what they really think of them, but they see them as useful idiots, they see them as cannon fodder, and they see them as, you know, uh, bodies that can help grow the movement, quite frankly. Mm. I won't uh, repeat all the names that they use, because some of them are are quite offensive, but, you know, they see this as an opportunity to bring folks into the fold, and look, for all those people out there that are saying QAnon has nothing to do with white supremacy, Look at what the, the conspiracy itself advocates for. There is a healthy dose of anti-Semitism involved in the QAnon conspiracy, from George Soros to, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the Zionist-occupied government, the Zog. I, I can go on and on. So it's actually not that much of a far leap mm. to go from believing in QAnon, which is, let, let's be honest, it's a bit beyond the pale, to then believing in uh, your kind of traditional white supremacist, neo-Nazi type type beliefs. I'm curious, Colin Clark, your your book, after the your most recent book, After the Caliphate, the Islamic State and Future Terrorist Diaspora, of course, it focuses on the, the, the rise and fall and continuation of ISIS in in some format. But I'm actually curious, last time you were on the show, you discussed that you had never thought you would be talking about insurgent movements in the U.S. this way. How has your work on ISIS and uh, insurgencies elsewhere informed what you are now seeing in in the U.S.? Well, you know, we see uh, the same type of preparation. We see similar, uh, you know, rhetoric coming out of these groups. I will say I don't think it's possible for an actual insurgency to begin on U.S. soil. I think we see insurgent-like tactics, but a full-blown insurgency is so far-fetched because you know, frankly, unlike many of the cases that I've studied worldwide, the United States has exquisite and world-class security forces. So it would never be able to reach that point. That said, you know, we could be in store for increased acts of domestic terrorism. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. I think that's more, more likely than not. And then there's the issue of legitimacy. The president hammered home for months that the Biden administration was illegitimate. And that's what we see people who I'll call MAGA zealots, grasping onto. They're really just saying, you know, this election was stolen. They truly believe it, despite no evidence. And that's, you know, whether whether or not it's real or just perceived in this kind of, you know, fantasy land that many of these folks live in, it's that illegitimacy that could drive people to engage in acts of violence that they perceive as justified. They see themselves as acting as a vanguard on, on part of a broader movement. 
if you look at the language, and, and I'm reminded of this, uh, I'm talking to you today from, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, mm. and I live less than a mile from the Tree of Life Synagogue when mm. that attack happened. Yeah. And if you look at the language that Robert Bowers used before he went in and, and committed his deadly terrorist attack, he said, screw your optics, I'm going in. He, he looked at himself as talking to this broader audience and as sacrificing himself as a martyr for this perceived cause, right? There was no one there other than his online echo chamber on Gab. Um, he didn't actually have people that were backing him up in real life. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what the same thing you see. Think about the Pizzagate conspiracy. There's the opportunity when people hold these strong beliefs for them to move from beyond the keyboard to real-life action, and the result is, unfortunately, deadly violence. Yeah, you note also in your Times op-ed last week that a PBS NewsHour uh, Marist poll found 8% of Americans surveyed said that they supported the insurrection. And now when I first read that number, I thought, oh, good, that's a pretty small number, just 8%. But you cite it, I believe, as actually a dangerously high number of people that might now now be open to further extremist uh, actions. Uh, am I reading that correctly? It does not take uh, more than one or two, as we have seen in recent years, to cause a hell of a lot of damage. You're absolutely right. And, and while you might say 8% is a small number, keep in mind that we live in a country of 328 million people. Mm-hmm. So if 8% of that's 26 million people. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying 26 million people believe in that and would be violent, but terrorism is a numbers game. It always has been. Mm. So even if you take a really, really small fraction of that, number, right? You're still talking about a lot of people that believe in something that has no basis in reality and seem committed, at least on the face of it, to engage in acts of violence to, you know, further their own belief system. And that's something that I think, that's the paradigm change that I've seen in this country that doesn't look familiar to four years ago, before Trump came Mm. to office. He's fundamentally changed those dynamics in a way that are going to impact this country in such a negative way going forward. And, again, people called me alarmist. People called me many other names. Uh, I I got all sorts of hate mail after that uh, op-ed. I'm just out here calling balls and strikes. You know, I'm I'm, I'm agnostic to the violence, Mm -hmm. to to the ideology that motivates the violence. I'm just trying to understand it and, you know, lend my expertise as someone that's been doing this for 20 years as to where I see things going. Mm -hmm. And, Brad, where I see things going is not in a good direction. No, it is not. And there's another uh, thing that I, I'm concerned about uh, that goes along with all of this, and that is, you know, sort of what, what will be done about it, what should be done about it. You note also in your in your Times piece that the Biden administration has announced an initiative aimed at overhauling the government's approach to domestic terrorism. It ordered intelligence agencies to conduct a comprehensive threat assessment of domestic violent extremism and develop the capability to counter extremism and disrupt extremist networks in coordination with federal departments overseeing evolving terrorism threats. And while I, you know, read that and and feel that that's absolutely necessary, uh, and in, in some sense it's shocking that that's the sort of thing that we don't already have in place, with that in mind, are we in danger now of sort of turning the surveillance of uh, foreign jihadists that we put in place after 9-11, are we now in danger of turning those tools directly against domestic American actors, and should we be concerned about that? Yeah, we should. Look, we need to be, you know, on guard uh, over the 
know, the mistakes that we've made in the past. We need to be transparent about what the plan is or the strategy is going forward. We talk all the time about best practices and lessons learned, but too often we disregard them. With a new administration, we say, you know, let's start, let's throw, throw everything out and start, uh, start from scratch. I don't think we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater in this case. Uh, at the same time, some of the lessons we've learned from the last 20 years of fighting Salafi jihadists just don't pertain. You know, I wrote a piece in the Cypher Brief with Bruce Hoffman over the summer where we talked about, you know, for, for the better part of the past two decades, we've been focused on fighting groups and organizations overseas. Now we're concerned with individuals and movements on U.S. soil. So qu quite a big difference there. American citizens have different rights under the law, including First and Second Amendment, than we would be talking about if we were analyzing, a, you know, an ISIS network operating in uh, Syria. So there's a lot of care to take as we figure out what to do next. What I've been heartened by is seeing that the Biden administration understands the sense of urgency. It's tapped some of the most capable people in this country to, to lead the charge, in my opinion, and made this position one that is going to command a lot of weight on the National Security Council. And it's also in touch with experts in the field to, to learn about their own research. And it's empirically driven, right? This isn't just, hey, what's your, what's your swag on this, mm -hmm. right? No, it's what does the data tell you? And we'll act on the data. And that's something that we didn't see under the last administration when we had President Trump talking about, I'm going to designate Antifa as, as a terrorist group. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of what's aboutism that, you know, happens in this space. The most common rebuke I get when I you know, talk about my research on the far right is, what about Antifa? As if it were an equivalent. Look, and again, if Antifa starts killing people, you know, and, and starts, especially in the way that the far right has, they, they need to be treated the same exact way. This isn't a partisan issue. This is terrorism. This is political violence. Whoever is perpetrating it needs to be held accountable. The data shows, and this is overwhelming, that the far right is by far the most violent and dangerous threat to the United States, and it has been for some time. Yeah, it has been, and it's something that I, I remember going back to the uh, very beginning of the uh, Obama presidency, and they put out a, a study from the DHS, Janet Napolitano, those very concerns about far-right extremism and so forth, and the right, the Republicans, got so furious about it that they actually cowed the Obama administration and Napolitano into pulling that report back and basically dissolving the group at DHS that had created it, created that warning that I, I feel like had we, you know, paid more serious attention to that back then, we wouldn't be in this place now. Colin Clark, you said the uh, earlier uh, in our conversation, you said that we have all the laws that we need. We just have to use them, enforce them and so forth. But, you know, a lot of the, uh, the terror laws that we have are against foreign actors. And uh, I've come to learn that we don't actually have domestic terrorism laws in the same way. Is that true? If so, why is that? And do, do we need to create such laws? Yeah, so I'll, that'll be the, um, the corollary to my earlier statement. We need to enforce the laws we have, and I'm also, frankly, open to at least exploring the possibility of implementing, you know, crafting, devising, implementing uh, new laws. Uh, you're right, we don't have a domestic terrorism statute. That's why the KKK, which most people would recognize as one of the most odious uh, organizations, you know, in human mm -hmm. history, is not 
classified as a domestic terrorist organization. We don't have that statute that's the equivalent of how we would label al-Qaeda, ISIS, etc., as an FTO or foreign terrorist organization. Um, there are concerns that if we had a president uh, that was willing to wield that law in an unethical manner, he could smear and tar his opponents, mm-hmm. his political opponents. Yeah. Um, and again, the president talked about Antifa. There were, you know, uh, musings that he would, uh, if, if he could, he would have, you know, used that label on Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's real concern there. I think, you know, a happy medium might be making domestic terrorism a federal crime. Because there it's not quite the equivalent of the statute, but at the same time it does give federal law enforcement more tools, more resources to go after these networks on U.S. soil, to charge people for material support, to at least begin kind of picking these groups apart uh, in a way that we've been able to do quite successfully overseas. It's it is a concern, though. I mean, we, we have to do something, obviously. But I, I recall uh, our, our friend uh, Richard uh, Escow, a, uh, a columnist, the host of uh, Zero Hour. Last time he was on the show, we were discussing, I think, the permanent bans on Twitter of Trump and the QAnon folks, etc. Uh, he said, you know, he understood the action, but he was concerned, he said, because these type of tactics against supposed terrorism and so forth always eventually get turned against those on the left he warned and so uh, even as i hear folks on the left pushing for more such laws um i i do think as you note colin it could have easily been turned against the left uh by donald trump when he was in office against blm etc something that we need to keep our eyes on very closely no matter what happens um colin clark uh, i hope you'll stay in touch with us on this you can find uh, him on the Twitters at Cullen P. Clark, and you can find the Sufan Center, where he uh, is a, a senior research fellow focusing on terrorism, insurgency, and political violence. They are also on the Twitters at the Sufan Center and, of course, at thesufancenter.org. Uh, Colin, great speaking with you today. Um, look forward to it, I guess, in again in the future. Thanks so much for having me. Hopefully next time we'll have... Uh Better things to talk about, cheerier anyway. Uh, I'm sure that'll happen. Thanks, Colin. Thank you. (laughs) All right, quick break, and uh, we are back with the Green News Report, which, ironically enough, does have some cheerier things to talk (laughs) about. Yes, it does. How often does that happen? Not often enough. Quick break, and we're back with that right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. No, I know, I know. No dilly-dallying. Nope. <laughs> right to it. Our latest Green News report. So as the Biden administration prepares a whole-of-government approach to combating climate change, the Democratic majority will pursue a whole-of-Senate approach as well. Democrats take control, pledge to act on climate. Automakers drop bid to block California's vehicle emission standards. 
Coal will be gone from the U.S. power grid by 2033, says new report. Plus, COVID lockdowns cleared the air, but also increased global warming. What? All of those confusing stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Democrats are also in the position to do something about climate change. That's right, mother. We're coming to take your straws. That's right. Suck it up. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, good news because COVID cleared the air but made global warming worse? What? (laughs) Yes. So, yes, COVID lockdowns in 2020 led to temporarily cleaner air around the world. It was beautiful. It was. And now a new study shows that it also led to a slight uptick in global warming. Why? The drastic drop in fossil fuel use also caused a drop in toxic particulate air pollution. Those are teensy particles that are spewed from tailpipes, coal plants, and industry that helps create that brown haze over cities. Those particles also cool the atmosphere slightly by blocking the sun's heat. So yes, cleaning up the air will warm the planet a tiny bit, but it will kill a lot fewer people from toxic air pollution. So pollution is needed to stop global warming. (laughs) No, pollution is not needed to stop global warming. Only stopping the use of fossil fuels will stop global warming. I told you I was confused. Big moves underway in the auto industry in the wake of General Motors' announcement last week that it will phase out production of conventional gas and diesel vehicles and shift to all electric by 2035. Toyota, Fiat Chrysler, and several other automakers announced this week that they will drop their legal effort to block California from setting more stringent fuel economy and vehicle tailpipe emission standards. That's a special authority granted to the state under the Clean Air Act that the Trump administration attempted to revoke. So they were playing along with the Trump administration just to suck up to the Trump administration? Yep. Ford, Honda, BMW, Volkswagen, and Volvo had already committed to abide by California's tougher standards. The new move signals that the auto industry may finally be ready to work with President Biden's effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that cause dangerous man-made climate change. The Trump administration in March finalized a rollback of Obama-era fuel economy standards, which the Biden administration says it is moving swiftly to rewrite. Got it. So now they're sucking up to Biden. In politics, Senate Republicans finally agreed to a power-sharing arrangement that formally hands over control of Senate committees to Democrats, who have a one-vote majority with Vice President Kamala Harris. On the Senate floor on Wednesday, Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he has directed incoming Democratic committee chairs to put climate change at the top of their agendas. I promise that any action we take on infrastructure and particular will prioritize green infrastructure and the creation of green jobs and create many jobs good paying jobs we will good paying jobs we will is he yoda this democratic majority will compel the senate to urgently address climate change beginning with work in all of the relevant committees 
The U.S. Senate also approved former Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg as Secretary of Transportation, making him the first millennial and first openly gay person confirmed to a cabinet post. But most importantly, Buttigieg will be the first transportation secretary to openly accept climate science and advocate for the necessity of building climate-resilient infrastructure. And that matters, because new research shows that man-made climate change is causing sea level rise to accelerate, with oceans rising faster than scientists' most pessimistic forecasts. Revised estimates published this week in the journal Ocean Science show coastal economies around the world have even less time to prepare for increased flood risks than previously thought, even as many are already struggling to adapt to more frequent floods, storms, and tidal surges. The researchers warn that trillions of dollars' worth of insured property now faces accelerating flood risks and suggests countries need to move even faster to cut their greenhouse gas emissions. Finally, good news for things that breathe. That's me. Polluting coal is on track to disappear from the U.S. power grid by 2033 as the global shift to renewable energy accelerates. That's according to a new report from Morgan Stanley. Coal supplies about 20 percent of U.S. electricity currently. The report projects that coal will be replaced largely by renewable energy sources that will supply 40 percent of U.S. electricity by 2030 and more than 50 percent by 2035. See you, Cole. For much more on all of those reports and the ones we could get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Lord, how long can this go on? I've been working. I will just add that Joe Biden is trying to help coal country. It is an open question whether Republicans will stop him in creating a just transition or not. For those coal miners who will be out of work unless we can find new things for them to do, like clean up the mess made for the past how many decades? Exactly. All right. Well, we have to be going ourselves today. Uh, Thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Colin P. Clark of the Soufan Center, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. It is always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it for free at bradblog.com. Share it with your friends and your family and your enemies and everyone else. And that is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves as long as we possibly can or as long as you will have us. bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Bradblog. That's it until we meet again. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Oh, oh, oh.